Let's get into the word this morning. So the today's story, church, is Jesus turning water into wine. It's the first sign. It's only found in John's gospel. It's in John chapter 2, if you're wanting to follow along. And before we get into the reading, I must say, as I said, on the surface, this seems like a strange miracle to choose. So John doesn't call them miracles. He simply calls them signs. But I have to say, I'm not much of a wine drinker at all. I never really sort of developed a taste for wine. Uh, I'm now 47 years old, and I'm quite okay with that. I save myself a, a lot of wine and possible kidney damage. So I'm okay with not being much of a wine drinker. And so I look at this, and, and I think, yeah, what? Why would you? It's a, it's a party. They ran out of wine. Okay, it was kind of embarrassing, but what's the big deal? If I were Jesus, I would have chosen something really spectacular to announce myself, to say, here I am. I would have gone with raising someone from the dead or walking on water or calming the storm, something really spectacular. So I've always thought this story was kind of just a little bit, meh. Okay, I don't, never really understood why this was so significant. But this is the first time that I've ever really researched this story. And I've discovered that if you dig beneath the surface, this is a really profound story that points us to who Jesus is and what he came to do. John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, if you're following through, uh, tells, us, tells us this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six large stone jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, oh, everyone brings out the, the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Friends, let's pray. Loving Lord, as we come to explore your word, we pray that you might reveal yourself to us. We pray that you might come alive to us through the pages of Scripture this morning. Father, we pray that you might give us fresh insights into this familiar story, this famous story. 
Father, we pray that I might decrease and that you might increase in all that is said and in all that is heard. And the people said, Amen. Now, it's important, friends, that you realise that running out of wine back in the day would have been a pretty big deal. Running out of wine uh, was a pretty big deal at a time when you couldn't trust the water. Right? So the ancients would drink wine because they knew it was safe. The fermentation process, we now know, we moderns know, uh, kills off all the, the, the germs. But they just knew that you didn't get sick from, from drinking wine if you had dodgy water. So it was quite important uh, to have enough wine on hand. And it's important to know that weddings would last for days. Right? It's not like we modern Aussies and we sort of have an afternoon and, a, and an evening. Now these, these weddings would last for days, up to about a week. So these were big events. And it was a source of great shame if you were to, to run out of wine at a wedding. It would have been a real scandal. The village would, talk, would have talked about it for years to years. Remember when Jonah and Rachel ran out of wine at their wedding? What a disgrace. Now, Jesus' mother was there. Now, have a look at your text. It doesn't name her. We know that her name's Mary. <clears throat> but <clears throat> John never actually names Mary. And I think that is perhaps significant. It, verse, uh, verse 4 is, is, really, is really significant. All we know is that Mary has, is aware of this, this crisis. Uh, she's not named in the text. It simply says, Jesus' mother came to him. She knew that he could help, and so she simply raises the issue with him. Now, my first little take-home point is that note what Mary says to Jesus. Here. She didn't tell him what to do. She simply says, look, here's the situation. Can you help with it? Sometimes I hear prayers that almost cross the line into commanding God what to do. Have you ever heard those prayers? I command you, God, to do this. I think we cross a line when rather than simply presenting our request to God with thanksgiving, we command, we tell him how he should act. We think we might know better this. Lord, this is what you need to do. So just be careful about that. It's my first little application point. It'd be like Mary, simply present your request to Jesus. Now, as I said, verse 4, his response is really significant. Have a look at it for me. Let's have a look at verse 4 and see what Jesus says to his mother. Mother, because it's a tad jarring, it's a tad awkward. What does he say to his mum? Woman. Fellas, I do not recommend calling your wife or your mother woman. I tried it once, didn't go well. I don't recommend it. Don't woman me, she said. Right, now, back in the day, you need to understand it's a different culture. It wasn't quite as offensive as we would hear it now. So calling his mother woman wasn't necessarily offensive, but it is still nevertheless a tad jarring. It's a tad, still a tad sort of brusque. So not as offensive as if a husband was to say to his woman now, but it was a regular expression, but he does it's still a tad jarring, especially when what he says next. He says, what does this have to do with me? He dismisses his own mom. Now, what I want you to know, church, is that this phrase, what has this got to do with me, is used five other times in the Gospels. And on each of those five occasions, it's used by a demon speaking to Jesus. Whenever Jesus enters into a bit of spiritual warfare, you'll find the demons saying to him things, what do you want with us, son of God? It's the same Greek phrase. What has this got to do with you? He's pressing into their territory. and He's saying, you shouldn't 
They're saying, you shouldn't be barging in. This is, this is my deal. You have no place here. This is not your affair. This is none of your business. This is what that phrase really means. Jesus is saying, this is really none of my concern. This is really none of my, of my business. So he's doubly abrupt with his own mum. Woman, what has this got to do with me? So what's going on here, certainly given the fact that he then goes on and solves it anyway, goes on and performs a miracle anyway. He could have just said to his mum, yeah, look, mum, I realise, don't worry, I'll take care of it, but he didn't. That's what he did, but that's not what he said, not what he told his mum. So why? I think what Jesus is trying to communicate to his own mother, and indeed to you and I, to everyone that was there, that Jesus is not so much about his mother's will, but in fact his heavenly father's will. I think what Jesus is trying to say, that he won't be controlled by any earthly agenda. He's all about doing his his father's will. Even his own mother couldn't expect any special favours from him. I think he's saying that he's 100% committed to doing what his father's calling is. He won't be co-opted into anyone else's agenda, not even his own mum's. His father's will, his heavenly father's will is his north star is his true north, his guiding light, and he will not be drawn left or right by anyone. He's not going to allow competing influences to to take him off his course. So let me now also ask you this morning, friend, is Jesus your true north? Is your heavenly Father your guiding light? Do you allow yourself to be distracted to the left or to the right by competing agendas in this world. One time in Luke, actually, in Luke chapter 11, it says that someone calls out to Jesus and says, Oh, blessed is the woman who bore you, and blessed are the breasts that nurse you. And Jesus shot back at this person. No, no. Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word and keep it. See, Jesus seems not transfixed on human blood relations, but on spiritual relations. He seems to prioritize his his followers over his own family. I got in trouble with saying this once back in my previous placement. Without even knowing it, I actually alienated a family that was visiting that very morning. They were coming to check out our church, and I happened to be preaching on a passage whereby Jesus rebukes his own, his own family. It was my way of saying, sometimes you have to put family to one side. The family were incredibly offended, and we never saw them again, sadly. It just happened to be that one week when this passage came up. I didn't even know what I'd done. We just never saw them again. It took me a while to work out what had, had happened. But don't, so don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying family isn't important. If you are blessed with a family, part of your calling is indeed to love and to serve and to care for your family. However, there may well be times when you will need to put some boundaries in place to say, you know what, no, actually, today I actually need to be with my church family. Today is Sunday, and Sunday I, I need to be with my, my church family today. That's my, that is my priority. If this sounds radical to you, friend, it really, it really shouldn't. On another occasion, Jesus is preaching inside a house, and there's a crowd gathering in, and someone calls out, hey, Jesus, you're... Your mum and your brothers are here to see you. They want you. And Jesus calls back, well, who are my mother and my brothers? He says he looked at those who were seated around him and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Now, it sounds harsh, but when you think about it, 
it's actually very good news in a way. It means that it actually doesn't matter what family line we come from. You could come from the most ungodly family in the world. You could come from a bunch of people that are a bunch of rogues that don't want anything to do with God or his good life-giving rules for this life. But that won't stop you from being adopted into God's heavenly family. Amen? Really significant. I haven't even finished with verse 4 yet. Let's do some theology this morning. I want you to stick on verse 4. Really significantly in verse 4, Jesus is still talking back to his mother at this stage. Jesus really significantly concludes by saying, my hour has not yet come. Wow. So what does he mean by this? Now, I always thought, because as I said, I never really looked in depth at this passage. When I, th- I knew that Jesus said this, my hour had not yet come. I sort of thought that he meant I wasn't ready to be launched publicly yet. I wasn't ready to have the big PR campaign. That's not actually what Jesus means by his use of this phrase, my hour. Let's have a look and see where else this is used throughout John's gospel. Check this out, church. Throughout John's gospel, his hour equates to the time of his death, when he dies and purifies us from sin. John chapter, John 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8, verse 20. No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. John 12, 27. Now, this is Jesus speaking. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. John 12 again, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So friends, Jesus' hour is the hour of his death. when the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. It's a fairly strong rebuke to his mother here. But I love, again, Mary is a wonderful example to us. I love what Mary does. She's not perturbed. She's not cheesed off. She doesn't storm off in a half. Mary hangs in there and she simply says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She of all people knows that with Jesus, things might not work out in the way that you would have planned them. She knows that things work out with Jesus even if it doesn't make much sense to you at the time. I think it's good advice for us still today. Do whatever he tells you and leave it in his hands. And indeed, as we know, Jesus goes ahead and saves the day anyway. He shows mercy and grace and compassion on this family as he always does. He asks that six large stone jars that were used for ceremonial washing be filled to the brim. It's around about 600 litres, modern, we're working in litres. It's about 600 litres of water. It's a lot of water. Now, it's important to know, friend, what these jars were used for. These were not used for drinking. This water is not for drinking. This water is for washing. That's what these stone jars were for. They were used for ceremonial washing, for ceremonial purification rituals. They were used for bathing. That's what this water was for, and that's really significant, really significant. You see, friends, Jesus wants wants to point us to his death as the ultimate purification for sins that will nullify and replace all the old Jewish rites and rituals. He's saying, I'll take the purification rituals of old 
and replace them with a decisively new way of purification, that, of course, being my blood. This will be the ultimate act of purification. John later goes on in his letter, uh, 1 John chapter 1, he says, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. Can you see this connection here? This washing, these jars are for purification. When he turns water into wine, we're supposed to make that connection to his blood. So Jesus here, friend, is taking 600 litres of laws and rules and regulations and he's transforming them. He's taken 600 litres of guilt and shame and do this and don't do that. And he's transforming them into a new faith, new meaning, a new way of life. 600 litres of guilt are transformed to 600 litres of grace. Praise God. Praise God. So the guests went on to drink this top shelf, what we would call top shelf wine, from these purification vessels. Keep in mind, later John would go on to say, Jesus would say in John 6, my blood is the true drink. So it makes sense. My blood is the true drink. Unless you drink the blood of the Son of Man, you will have no life in you. So what Jesus is doing here at this sign, this first sign of his, is saying, well, look, mum, look, the hour, my hour, my climactic hour of my life and death has not yet come, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you a sign. I'll give you a sign, an acted out parable, if you will, of my death and what it will mean. Now, John never uses the word miracle. He uses this word sign. And it's important to realize that a sign points something beyond itself, doesn't it? A sign isn't an end in itself. If you go out and you drive down Old South Head Road and you follow the signs of the Sydney CBD, the sign is not your destination. The sign points to something beyond itself. No one ever said, I really want to go on holidays and see this sign. You follow the signs to the Blue Mountains or to the Grand Canyon, to the Eiffel Tower, whatever it is. A sign points beyond itself. And that is what Jesus is doing here. The sign of turning water into wine points us towards a far greater truth. A far greater truth. John says it plainly elsewhere when he writes the book of Revelation. You know that this disciple John, I went on to write the final book of your Bible, the book of Revelation. He says, They that have been that have washed their robes have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Sounds a bit gross, sounds a bit macabre, doesn't it, to our modern ears? But the concept is fairly clear. We are washed clean. Jesus' blood is the bleach that washes us whiter than the snow. He and he alone, once and for all, has made us pure, has washed us clean. So, friend, let me ask you, are you washed in the blood this morning? I nearly chose that as an old country song to sing this morning. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are we familiar with that old song? One or two of us. Remember to think of, your, think of Jesus sitting here at the wedding. He's saved the day, and people are enjoying the finest of wine. But he's here thinking, wow, these people are enjoying themselves, but he must have been thinking about his moment, his hour, when he would actually shed his blood for, for these people. I want you to have a look at, at verse 9, if you could. Verse 9, the master of the feast, we're told, who worked out what had happened. The master of the feast is like this, sort of like the MC. He's not really in charge. He's not the master of ceremonies, but he goes to the bridegroom. 
Now, the bridegroom is the one that's ultimately in charge. So the MC goes to the boss, the bridegroom himself. So we see who's ultimately responsible for this gathering. And he's amazed that unlike most people who serve up the best wine first and leave the dodgy stuff to the end, when people are too tipsy to work it out, he says, you've saved the best till last. But of course, think about it. No, he didn't. This bridegroom let the wine run out. This bridegroom is really cashing in on Jesus' work, Jesus' amazing sign. I'm sorry, ladies, but all husbands are going to let you down at some point. All bridegrooms are going to let you down at some point. That's just the way it is with all grooms here on this earth. All husbands fail to be what they should be. But quietly... But omnipotently, Jesus plays the role of the perfect bridegroom, doing what this bridegroom at this wedding could never do. Jesus never fails to give us what we need. His life-giving blood, spilt at his death for us, never runs out, full to the brim, overflowing. Jesus is the perfect, all-providing husband for we, his church. So I've got a few take-home points as we conclude this morning, a few little key points of application. Firstly, I, need, I think we need to admit that we're empty. First point of application, admit to God your need. Come before him and say, Lord, I've run out. I'm, I'm, I'm empty and I have no way of solving the situation myself. Confess that like the wine at this wedding, you've run dry. Confess that you can't help yourself. You're in no way of, you can't clean yourself. You're in a a hopeless situation. Remember, the groom only escaped great shame by being able to draw on the rich resources that Jesus had provided for him that day. Far too many Aussies go through life thinking that they can get by on their own resources, their own cleverness. Far too many Aussies go through life thinking that they are okay, that they can clean themselves up, they can sort of scrub themselves up and then present themselves on the day of their death St. Peter at the pearly gates and be admitted because I was a good person and I paid my taxes on time. It's an incredibly arrogant way of going about life, an incredibly ignorant way of thinking. You're not okay. You need cleansing. You need washing in the blood of the Lamb. Confess your need for this cleansing, purification, purification today. Secondly, look for God in the ordinary. Look for him in the everyday. Watch for God at work in times when you're eating and celebrating with friends. God wants an invitation to your wedding. But more than that, he wants an invitation to your everyday stuff. He wants an invitation to lunch today. He wants an invitation down to the beach later on this afternoon. He wants an invitation to work or to school or to uni or to college later on this year. He wants to be with you in your everyday stuff, part of your daily routine. The famous missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, once said, Christ is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. <laughs> he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. He wants to be Lord of all of your life, every part of your life, the big and the small things. He's not just interested on Sunday mornings. He wants every part of your life. He wants to be sovereign, Lord of everything, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you go about living out your relationships. Every part of your life, every decision you make, he wants to be a part of of that. And if you do that, you'll think you'll, I think you'll start to see God at work in little ways. You'll start to say, hang on for a second, that, uh, that, that message, that was for me. That little that TV 
show that I, that, that really spoke to me. That was God speaking to me through that documentary. That sermon or that song, that article that I read, that, that was actually God speaking through that to me. So secondly, look for God in the ordinary. But let's thirdly, expect God to do the extraordinary. Let's expect him to do great things. Even though he works through the ordinary, we can and should expect God to do the extraordinary among us. We shouldn't be surprised when we see a miracle. And frankly, church in the marketplace, I think the church is going to need to rely on God to do the extraordinary amongst us in the 21st century. We can't get by resting on our laurels anymore. The generation that grew up in Sunday school, that was schooled in the ways of following Jesus Christ, are slowly but surely going home to glory. Younger people, like myself, (laughs) it's a relative term, I know, but we need to raise up a new generation of disciples, and it's going to take a miracle at this stage in what is ultimately a very hostile environment, yes? Let's church, let's seek miracles in 2022. Fourthly, can I ask that we submit to his timing and his will? Be like Mary in this situation. Be like Jesus' mother, who was wise enough just to leave it with him, even though she didn't know how it was going to work out. Can you imagine in her situation, how are they going to solve this situation? I don't know, but I'm just going to tell my son about it and, and leave it with him. Can I, when, if you have a problem, no matter how small or insignificant it is, Know that God is wise and is loving. Know that he has a plan. Know that all things work out for the good of those who love him. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Colin Buchanan did a song about this. Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not in your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, on your own cleverness. But in all your ways, acknowledge him. Heavenly Father, this is a situation I can't solve. I'm going to leave it with you. Trust in you to solve it in your time, in your way. Uh, Fifth, be like Jesus and give your best. Give your very best. Jesus gave his best. He didn't just give enough wine to scrape through. He gave abundantly, copious, 600 litres of wine, and he gave the very best stuff. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 tells us uh, that he gives us more than we could ever ask for or imagine. So let's go and do likewise. Let me ask, are you someone that's known as having a generous spirit? Are you someone who's known for going the extra mile, for helping people out when you didn't really have to, for being open-hearted and, and, and soft-hearted, open-handed? Well, I hope you are still today. I reckon you still are. You're very generous, Fiona. You're very generous, sister. Let's be like Fiona. She gives generously. Uh, and, and so let's, can I encourage you to be one of those people who just gives of yourself. Now, Jesus, of course, gave his blood. I don't think any of us here this morning are likely to have to shed blood for Jesus this week. But I think let's make sure that our lives are pointing to Christ like a sign. Okay? Does the way you live act like a sign in pointing others to Jesus in terms of your, your generosity? 
Be joyous and live large is number six. Jesus was at a wedding. He loved to party. Are you the sort of person that people like to be around? Following Jesus isn't for sourpusses or for legalists. I know that not everyone is a party animal. I realize that. But even if you're an introverted person, even if you're the sort of person that really reacts well to people one-on-one in quieter situations, I, I hope that once people get to know you, that they really want to be around you because because they, want, they know that, that you are a generous person, that, that even though you might not be loud and brash, that you have something to give, that you really want to seek to bless those around you. So whether you're a gregarious type or whether you're a quieter type of person, can I, can I encourage you to be joyous, to exhibit joy in your own way? Seven, be gracious. Think about this. A commentator once said, this little episode is pure grace. This is an example of God's grace. Again, I had never thought of it this way. Jesus didn't come to this wedding and hear the request from his mother and go, well, they should have planned better. They really should have thought about that, shouldn't they, mum? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, well, they're drinking too much. Look at them. They're a bunch of drunks. He doesn't say that at all. And it may well have been right. The groom probably should have planned better and they may well have been drinking too much. But Jesus doesn't go there at all. Jesus is full of grace. There's no, they've made their bed, they've got to line it. He, as always, is, is gracious. So let's be gracious towards one another as a church family. Let's be gracious towards the world around us. Finally, let's believe in him. Let's cut to the final verse. If you've still got it open in front of you, verse 11. It says that the disciples this day believed in him. This is a call to faith, this story. And this belief is not just a head knowledge. It's not just ticking a sort of a, an intellectual box in your head going, yet yeah, tick, I'm a Christian. No, it's deeper than that. It's much more. It's a call to loyalty. It's a call to allegiance. It's a call to pledge your life to him, to pledge your career, your relationship, to say it's all in your hands, Lord. This is what he's calling us to today. This first sign points us to a saviour who is all about conversion, converting water into wine and sinners into saints. Can I invite you this day, friend, to give your allegiance to the one who shed his blood to purify you, to wash you clean. So come and taste and see that the Lord is good, says Psalm 34, verse 8. Come and taste. Come and experience it. Come and drink it into yourself. Not just the head knowledge. Live it out. Be part of it. Can I invite you to come and drink deep and live on the blood of Jesus Christ today? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a strange story. And for us moderns, we moderns, the concept of drinking blood or being washed in the blood is a strange one. It's a foreign one. It's one that the world will look at and not understand. But Father, we know what you are trying to say, Father. So help us to live it out this week. Help us to apply this truth this week. To not try to stitch ourselves up, fix ourselves up, wash ourselves clean, but simply to surrender to you, Lord. To say, here I am, Lord, I surrender to your washing, cleansing, purifying love through the blood of Jesus Christ. We throw ourselves upon your mercy and your grace. Help us to live abundantly. Help us to live generously. 
Help us to live graciously this week and thereby be signs to something far deeper than ourselves, something beyond ourselves. May we this week be pointing people to you. In Jesus' name, amen.